Well, hello everyone. Good day to you all, dear friends. We are up to part seven in our series on knowing God. And I do hope and trust that you are gaining a clearer understanding in the things that are being shared. Today's study is entitled, The Wrath of God. But before I jump in, let's talk about words for a bit. Many words tend to change meaning over time. Nowadays, if you say something is awful, it carries a negative meaning. However, in the past, it was actually a term of praise that people used. To say someone or something was awful meant literally that someone or something was worthy of awe. But over time, awful became more and more negative and the word awesome replaced it in terms of its original meaning. In the early 17th century, The word suffer was used to mean to allow. To suffer someone was not to inflict pain and hardship on them, but to allow them to do something. Hence, in 1611, when the King James Version was translated, they wrote Jesus' words in Matthew 19 and verse 14 as, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't prevent them, allow them to come to me suffer them to come. In the 14th century, if someone was said to be naughty, it didn't mean that they were rude. It meant that they were poor. A naughty person was someone who had nothing. They had naught. Nowadays, when we say someone is nice, we mean it as a compliment. However, in the 14th century, to say that someone was nice actually meant ignorant, foolish, or even stupid. So words can change meaning over time. To say that something is artificial today means it is not genuine, it is a fake. Two centuries ago, however, it meant something totally different. It meant that something was very artistic or skillfully made. It's artificial means artfully made. Today, a cemetery is where we bury the dead, where the dead are laid to rest. In the 15th century, this was known as a dormitory. But today, what is called a dormitory is the sleeping quarters at a boarding school or similar institution. Just a few years ago, when we were all much younger, when someone was said to be gay, it meant they were happy and cheerful. Today, it means something totally different. And these are just a few of many, many examples. And in fact, there is a branch of study called etymology, which deals with how words gradually change meaning over time. Well, that's it for a little diversion, the reason for which will become clearer later on. We begin this week's study by going to the very last book first, the book of Revelation. And I will be reading chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. The prophet John is in vision. And he's seeing some terrible calamities getting ready to break out all around the earth. But interestingly, he also sees angels of God stationed in positions around the world, preventing, or as the Bible says, holding back these destructive forces, noted as winds or winds of strife. 
So there are two opposite forces at work, one seeking to spread chaos and destruction upon the earth and another blocking or preventing it. Revelation 7, it reads thus, And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. The winds here are not referring merely to breeze, to storms, as in the case of hurricanes, etc. The term as it is used here and in other places in the Bible, it refers to destructive forces, wars, diseases, famines, natural disasters, plus all the evils that naturally flow out of the heart of sinful man against each other. All of this getting ready to be unleashed upon the earth and held back by angels of God. Now think with me here. What would be the result if these holy angels stop holding back the winds and allow them to blow over the earth? There would be widespread evils and destruction upon the earth, of course, such as was never seen before. It is telling us, therefore, that there exists out there a state of things in which the elements are very much destabilized and are poised towards bringing destruction. Revelation 7 continues verses 2 and 3, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now in just these few short verses, we are given enough to see that, one, things are not always as rosy as they seem on the surface. Number two, there is much instability and potential for strife and conflict hovering around the earth. Number three, the powers of nature are in a state of collapse, even as men's hearts grow more and more vile as we near the end. And number four, when it says to the angels, hurt not the earth, it can only mean keep holding back against the winds till God's people are sealed. So the hurting of the earth would be the same as them no longer holding back these winds, now releasing them. That's what it means. But how did things get this way? To a state where there is this spiritual conflict behind the scenes, this tense situation just brooding over the earth. The Bible surely shows us that this was not how God created things. At the completion of God's creative work, in Genesis 1.31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. It means there were no calamities brooding over the earth, no hurricanes, no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no bitterness, no hatred against each other, no diseases, no pandemics. The lion and the lamb could feed together in perfect peace. Adam and Eve did not need any guardian angels for protection because God's will was being done on earth as it was in heaven. And Bible scholars refer to this period as the earth being under the dispensation of God's glory. And had things continued like that, 
there would never have been any such thing as pain and sickness and death in the human experience. But things changed. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the scripture says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The entrance of sin, dear friends, made all the difference in the world and turned the perfect environment which God created to sustain life and give pleasure and happiness, turned it into a war zone. Sin brought a curse over the whole earth. In Genesis 3 verses 16 to 19, where God showed up after Adam and Eve sinned and he spoke of the curses which had now come upon the earth, he was not putting a curse on the earth. Rather, God was merely announcing to them the fact that this is now how things would be. This is what they had brought upon the earth as a result of their sin, a curse. Prior to sin, everything in creation functioned in perfect harmony, governed by the laws of nature, placed there by the creator of it all. God's purpose was to demonstrate that without laws, there can only be disorder and chaos and destruction. And all these laws are necessary for perfect function. Yet they can only be sustained by the Creator Himself, the one who put them in place. Concerning Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Colossians 1 16 and 17, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. In other words, hold together. All things are maintained in perfect orderly function by him. And again in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, after telling us that Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, it goes on to tell us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, by his powerful word, he upholds all things. So only the creator can maintain the order of creation. And he does so through laws which he has instituted in nature. And yes, all of nature is governed by laws. And that is why we're able to study the sciences of physics and chemistry and biology and many others. And we can measure the speed of light and the speed of sound, and all the rest. Without laws, none of this would be possible. God had given Adam and Eve dominion over all things of the earth, and as long as they remained loyal to their Creator, everything would remain in perfect, harmonious function. But they sold out, and gave that dominion into the hands of Satan, thus placing the whole earth in jeopardy. Being merely a creature himself, Satan does not have the power, the ability to maintain perfect order in nature. Neither does he have the desire to do so either. His sole purpose is to inflict suffering and to destroy God's creation by bringing in death and destruction and suffering upon God's creation. And he knew that by getting mankind to join him in rebellion, this would be the result. And so immediately after they sinned, for the first time, Adam and Eve experienced fear. 
and they sought to run and hide themselves. The perfect love that existed between them changed. And next, we see them blaming each other and even blaming God for what happened, throwing each other under the bus, as the saying goes. Nature went into a state of collapse. Their first son, Cain, murdered their second son, Abel. The animals became deranged. They started ripping each other apart for food. It was survival for the strongest. Everything changed. With the dominion handed over to Satan, everything would have instantly gone into total collapse and destruction and oblivion if God had not instantly put in place the rescue plan which he had for mankind before the foundation of the world. Grace was instituted. The earth, having lost that glorious state, was instantly placed under the dispensation of grace. And God immediately set about to give mankind a second chance. And it is in this world of conflict and pain and suffering and hatred and wars and bloodshed that this great rescue plan is taking place. As God invites whosoever will come aboard into the safety of faith in Jesus Christ and to be rescued. But not everybody will choose to be rescued or to accept the rescue. The world as we know it, dear friends, is clear evidence that a separation has taken place from the fullness of God's presence as it was prior to sin. Animals continue to be vicious against each other and against mankind. Humans continue to destroy each other as evil gets worse and worse with each passing day. Greed and oppression continue. Accidents, disasters are getting more and more frequent. The curse continues to weigh more and more heavily upon the earth. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And this state of disconnect from what things were, the way God created them, to what they became as a result of sin, this is what is known as wrath. And yes, I do know that this will sound strange to some, but yes, some words do change meaning over time. Wrath actually meant to be separated from God. In fact, it comes from an ancient Aramaic root word, which means to be broken off from, to be separated from. Today, when most people read the Bible and come across phrases like God's wrath or the wrath of God, there is only one picture that it can bring to the mind, and that is of a God who finally gets to the end of his patience, gets into a rage, and just pours out destruction upon disobedient and ungodly people who refuse to walk in his ways. We have to admit, that is the understanding we have all been given. And the fact that it is called God's wrath or the wrath of God automatically suggests to the mind that this is something of God or something belonging to God, something coming from God. But in reality, man's wrath and God's wrath are not the same. Human wrath involves inflicting damaging force upon another. God's wrath, on the other hand, involves separation from God's presence, being broken off. It does not describe something in God or something that God does 
Rather, it describes a state, a condition of having lost the presence and protection of God, being separated from God. That is what it actually meant. That is what the wrath of God actually means when properly understood. Persistent rebellion of God's creatures eventually brings a state of wrath. The prophet Isaiah states in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ears heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Notice that there is a separation caused by sin, and this is described as the hiding of God's face. The sinners are the ones who, by their choice, separate from God, to the point where he eventually withdraws from them, in honoring their choice. So, in reality, God's withdrawal of his presence is only in response to the fact that the sinner has already forsaken him. God speaks to Moses just before, shortly before Moses' passing. Deuteronomy 31, 16 and 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, you shall go to sleep with your fathers, and these people, speaking of the Israelites, they will rise up and go prostituting themselves after the gods of the strangers of the land, where they are going to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils coming upon us because our God is not among us? Notice it says, Then my anger shall be kindled against them, Another time we look at that word anger, many times in reference to God, it means my sorrow because God's heart is broken when he has to give his creatures up. It says, then my anger will be kindled against them. But how is this anger displayed? By heaping destruction upon them? No. He says, and I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them. And notice again that his forsaking them is only in response to the fact that they had already forsaken him. And now notice what happens when he turns from them. It says, And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Aren't these evils coming upon us because our God is not among us? Clearly then, the many evils that came upon them were not because God was sending these upon them, but because he was no longer among them, holding back the forces of evil, the winds of strife that are all around us in a sinful fallen world. And the next verse follows Deuteronomy 31 verse 18. It says, And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evils which they shall have wrought in that they are turned unto other gods. So the wrath of God is the turning away of God. The hiding of his face, as the writers sometimes call it. It is not an angry, destructive vengeance that makes God explode and destroy people. No. How could a God who has an anger problem, who cannot control his temper, turn and ask us to control ours? Does it make sense? 
And besides, God knew what they were going to do before they did it anyway because he knows the future. Here is another example that gives a definition. Isaiah 54 verses 7 and 8. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, says the Lord thy Redeemer. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. Notice that when they repent and turn back to him, he forgives and turns back to them. He says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. And the psalmist also gives us some insight into what God's wrath means. He refers to it as God hiding his face from the sinner. Psalm 89 and verse 46. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Psalm 27 verse 9. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. For thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. So wrath, dear friends, is based on the principle that God will leave the sinner when his presence or his influence is no longer desired. Basically, as one who highly respects the free will of others, he does not impose or force his presence or his influence where it's not wanted. When he leaves, however, those rejecting him reap the consequences which result from that separation from God and from his protection. The pattern presented below is used very many times in God's word to describe the wrath, or sometimes it says anger or fury of God. The pattern is one, because of man's sin, a separation develops, a breaking off, a division, a divide, a gap between creator and creature, a separation develops. And God pleads and says, come back to me, you're approaching, going away into danger. And they persist on their own path. They kill his prophets even. Until it gets to the point where God leaves the sinner. And then trouble comes upon them. Maybe from their enemies, from calamities. They have droughts. Whatever happens, trouble comes upon them. The blessings of God are removed from them. Yet the Old Testament writers, because of their way of expressing things, used phrases like the anger of God, the fury of God, the wrath of God, etc., etc., etc. And many people are thrown off by these expressions. They immediately picture in their mind a God who is in a rage and is pouring out destruction upon the sinful people that he's angry with. But that would mean that God is angry all the time. Because people are always sinning anyway. And every moment all around the world, some bad things are happening to people. How easy would it be for you to really fall in love with a God who is always angry and wiping out some people in different parts of the world every moment of every day? It would be impossible to really love and trust him completely, wouldn't it? You may pretend to do so, but if you were to stumble, you may be filled with anxiety. At the back of your head, you would be thinking that, well, he may be getting ready to send some affliction your way. In your imagination, you'd be thinking God is looking down upon you with a stern frown. Instead of a benevolent father, drawing close to forgive and encourage you along the way. 
Yet, the book of Job brings to view the record of a man who knows suffering and affliction. And what do we read in Job chapter 37 and verse 23? It says, concerning the Almighty, we cannot find him out. In other words, he's too big for us. He goes on, he says, he's excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Even in the midst of the deepest of Job's affliction, there was wisdom enough to say, this is not God's doing. But in James chapter 1 and verse 20, we're told, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about this. Some version says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Nor if the Lord is righteous in all he does, and the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness which is of God, this means therefore that what we define as wrath in human behavior cannot carry the same meaning when the word wrath is used in reference to God. Because the scripture says the wrath of man does not produce or manifest the righteousness of God. It becomes quite evident then that certain words, when used in reference to God, they carry a very different meaning and therefore must be interpreted differently from when those same words are used in reference to men. And this truth is highlighted by God himself through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55 verses 7 to 9, it reads, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 7-9 Understand, dear friends, we live in a fallen, sinful world, and everything human is imperfect. Human language is totally inadequate to describe a perfect God. So since we are limited to the imperfections of human language, and since God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways, and His thoughts infinitely higher than our thoughts, as we just read, it can only mean, therefore, that when certain words are used in Scripture to describe God's actions, it cannot mean the same as when the same words are used to describe man's actions. God is here saying through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not the same as your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. Indeed, they are higher above yours as the heavens are higher than the earth. This is just another way of saying that God is infinite and we are mere finite fallen creatures. Nevertheless, we have just one common system of language to describe both God's ways and actions and our ways and actions. And that is inadequate and imperfect human language. So we are very limited in this sense. It stands to reason then that when used to describe God and his actions, certain words cannot carry the same meaning or connotation as when used for ourselves. Man's wrath is an expression describing the savage fury of men. The development within man of anger 
and the desire to retaliate against those who offend them, to destroy them, to wipe them out, to avenge themselves on them. But God's wrath is different. For the ways of God are not the ways of men. God's wrath is not an expression of personal feelings of anger. It's an expression of the very heartbreak he is feeling from having to give his children up to their own follies, from being separated from his children because of their sins that they persist in. And we will see in future studies that this breaks his heart. Not because of selfish reasons, but because it hurts him to see us being destroyed. So understand, dear friends, the wrath of God doesn't mean the same thing when we speak of man's wrath. If wrath meant anger and vengeance and a vindictive God blowing his stop and flying off the handle and just exploding, how could a God who knew everything and knows everything before it happens, so he has the advantage of anticipation, and yet he can't control his temper? How could a God who has a temper problem, who cannot control his temper, ask us or tell us, command us to control ours? It tells us that something is amiss. We have not understood what God's wrath actually means. But next week we look at part two as we continue in God's wrath. Until then, dear friends, keep trusting, keep loving, keep praying, and keep living. God be with you all. Love you all. Mm -hmm.